everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to you about all things data and development. It is hard to talk about development and not talk about the digital revolution and importance of data. Data is used to measure what is happening, assess impact of policy and aid programs, and create tailored solutions for developmental problems. There's plenty successful examples of this happening, such as apps analyzing data on crops and the weather that significantly improve yields. And while there is great potential, simultaneously what is happening is data extractivism. This idea that data and the economic value that's embodied in it is being exported out of the country that it's collected in. And that is a developmental challenge in itself. The aim of this podcast is to understand the current situation of digital data across Africa. We discuss how what is happening right now might be reinforcing dependencies between local and external expertise but also what is needed for data to stimulate inclusive development. To do that, we reached out to two experts. First, you will hear from Nanjira Sambuli, researcher and policy analyst working on digital equality with experience at the World Wide Web Foundation, IHUB Kenya, and several UN panels. With Nanjira, we discussed what the current situation of data extractivism looks like and her take on how history and power dynamics might contribute to our understanding of how data might be used and exploited. Secondly, we discuss the role of the state in determining how data can be used to the benefit of African citizens and the importance of local expertise in building solutions. Therefore, Nigeria offers an analytical view. She helps us unpack the complexities of societies in the real world and pushes us to think about how that might impact the way data is used. To learn more about who is in charge of data now, privacy concerns, and what is necessary for African consumers and companies to benefit from their data, reach out to Moses Namara. Moses is a Ugandan academic who studies people's behavior in relation to online privacy. He recently published a paper on cross-cultural perspectives on e-health privacy in Africa. Moses will help us understand how consumers experience data collection practices and what is necessary to create data products that fit different African cultures and protect consumers' right to privacy. To get started, we'll hear from Nanjira first. So to start with the first question, what is the current situation of the use of data in Africa? Oh, it's bad. (laughs) 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 This is the easiest one to put it. And, you know, again, you know, sometimes when it comes to um, digital and data, a lot of people try to advance this ahistoricity to it as if it's not situated in the present and the past dimensions and dynamics and relationships that have existed. And so for Africa, the rest of the world, it's just another theater through which we are seeing the typical development uh, tropes, the typical historical um, imbalances and injustices, if you will, now being extended to what is supposedly a technical lens, which is through digital and data. So by and large, Africa as a continent is still not very connected. We're talking about approximately 25% of um, African Mm -hmm. citizens who are connected to the internet, for example. And so a lot of actors see potential to connect that other 75% with, you know, great population growth trajectories if COVID does not disrupt those numbers too much. it's, it's a great market potential, and you see this also in other developing con- uh, uh, regions and continents as well. So there's a lot of interest to you know, draw out and get business uh, from those already connected, but also to connect those who are unconnected, and within that, um, being underlined by this data economy. Who are your actors that are active within this digital data field? 
I, you know, uh, very generally, uh, you could, every actor, so you have governments in their bilateral or regional relationships with African countries playing a part in that, typically through international development instruments. You have the geopolitical dimension where you have the West versus China versus even new emerging actors like India who are showcasing interest in the continent, in the continent and in its markets. You also see private se uh, sector companies from all, all, all corners of the world, including local innovation communities, all sort of converging to, to, to get a piece of this data e uh, economy pie. Also, I was just going to ask you, why do you think this context of data extractivism is particularly harmful um, uh, in Africa? Do you, you mentioned historical imbalances. Do you think that these are the same factors that have been in play over time? Pretty much. And, you know, part of what's happening, if, uh, you know, as with other conversations around what are public goods, what are global commons, uh, data and the digital economy is still about a winner takes all. So whether it's a government whether, uh, through international development or a tech company from one corner of the world uh, going in on something as, uh, you know, as technical a field as education or health or agriculture, they're coming at it with we have to get, the, you know, be get there, sort of like discover this place, lock it into it, um, lock it, these people and their ideas and what they need into our systems, use that to then, you know, be the person or the actor on whom your uh, people rely to get access to certain stuff and the yeah. barriers to move from one, um, say, uh, tool or one solution to another are pretty steep. So you're pretty much locked in. And this is it's broadly, more broadly, what we've seen as the in, um, digital economy and the data economy that we're existing in. If you think about what role can data play uh, for development and like, what are the risks or the downsides that come along with it? So we see a lot of let's get data to help make more informed choices, to help with better planning, to help with cost savings, to help with you name it. We've seen all the top lines and the pitches. Um, but the devil is often in the details, and that's where the challenge is. And usually, we it's, it's a difficult conversation to have with a lot of people because people still want to believe that this is it. This is the panacea. This is what Africa has been waiting for. This is what any developing country or any community that has been left behind has waited for or needed the whole time. Um, the thing about data and any tools that can help you get all this data about people, personal, intimate, or proxy aggregations of people to help predict and all of that is a sense of control. Now, there are very many actors out there, whether they're in the state, private sector, or other configuration, who want power. And so they'll do whatever it takes to get it, if it's going to serve a particular interest that they have. Okay, and how do you see data be able to contribute in a, in a positive way? You know, it's not yet another app. Typically what we've seen is, mm -hmm. if you look at <laughs> over, say, the last 10 years of digital developments, it's always been the flavor of the season. Maybe a couple of years ago was mobile, mobile led to open data, mobile and open data was supposed to give us something that didn't quite work out. Enter new fancy technologies, somewhere between AI, blockchain, fourth industrial revolution, you name it, and now COVID. We keep thinking more data, data, data as opposed to actually understanding there are underlying issues that we have not been, those systemic issues and systemic thinking is what we necessarily need to start doing. So whether it's whether through the theories we advance, the way we study these things, the way we talk about them, how we accommodate, what we don't know is some of the things that can help us make sure we, we do not fast track uh, what is uh, uh, right now looking like it could be a net bad as opposed to a net good.
What do you think the role of states is in prioritizing both this thinking and doing, aligning technologies with you know what's appropriate for the context? Um, how can the state mediate this extractiveness of private sector behavior that we're seeing? <laughs> we need all states to go back to being custodians of the public interest, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, because we can keep giving, we can create blockchain versions of these very problematic governments we have, but it's not going to change anything. So when we talk about whether it's innovation or regulation or the role of governments as regulation, it has to be centered in the fact that they need to be custodians of public interest. One function, you know, in, in the tech world, talking about regulation has always, almost been like the the word, you know, it's like a Voldemort, he, the, the word that shall not be named, the R word, if you will. <laughs> and that's because it's always been this narrative that we're punishing innovation if we go about regulation. But one unstated and understated function of regulation is indeed consumer protection, which is a government's job because we elect them, or we try to, now bots and data can, apparently. But we, we need to restore the function of the state, which was we elect as the function of giving consent to uh, these instruments. We pay taxes, we do all this to make sure our benefits and I mean, our interests are, you know, protected. We absolutely have to make sure we reform the state to go back to that. But fashioning states in the function of private sector and businesses has been has been complicating the fact that they should be doing that. And so if we do not start changing pace with that, and I think, you know, funny enough, it's strange that we're living in a world where COVID determines everything, but we've seen where the role of a state is needed. If they had not stepped in, there's no innovation that's going to save us. Otherwise we'll never afford uh, to come out of lockdown. We've seen the need for the state. And so we should use that to gain trajectory and recalibrate what they should be able to do, which is um, consider and put into uh, action all the suggestions, all the, uh, you know, the laws that we've put in place to actually protect our interests and make sure that whatever is put out there is serving citizens as opposed to uh, squeezing them further. Okay, um, so I just have one final question, and this is just kind of going back to the central issue of this podcast, which is all about knowledge and knowledge production. So what we're going to ask is, like, what do you think are the mechanisms which really contribute to this whole data extraction process being seen as um, reinforcing these dependencies between local and external expertise and perhaps even how does power shape this notion of expertise and how can we challenge that <laughs> ah the expert question <laughs> sorry i'm just leaving you yeah, no it's, it's, it's a good one it's a good yeah. one it's it's also such a kryptonite because i don't know i guess there's, there's that the fight will always remain how do we then Think of expertise as everybody's an expert of their lived experience and everybody has something to contribute. My contributions are not more equal than yours, but in a certain context, mine might need to be prioritized or yours might need to be prioritized. Um, it goes back to history. We're not starting these things in a vacuum. We're not developing these tools. We're not developing systems in vacuums. There are all these histories that we have not resolved that carry on. So that even when it comes to something as like expertise, which we want to think of it as technical, is very shrouded in gender dynamics, in racial dynamics, in you name it, any dynamic has a factor to play on who's considered an expert or not. Heck, the fact that maybe I can put two English words together and sounds like a buzzword makes me an expert of the night, although somebody's been saying it in another in a longer way, is very telling about how we value these things. Say a bunch of LSE students come to Nairobi, they buy folks a couple of drinks, they get information, they go write a book, and they become the experts that are consulted, say by DFID. That's a typical economy. <laughs> That's real talk. It's happening. It's just that now COVID again, travel has been disrupted. So webinars wow. are 
<laughs> what a great reputation for this. <laughs> yeah. Or even brands like LSE, you know, you yeah, can have yeah. adapted you and suddenly you're an expert over me and my University of Nairobi degree. That's some real stuff that's happening over here. Yeah. Um, so respect. You know, the thing is human values and they keep being invoked. We talk about inclusiveness, we talk about diversity. What they actually mean in practice remains a secret source and I and, and really making sure we we give, we breathe life to them. And that remains an evergreen challenge. I think the most interesting theaters are around these unquantifiable things that cannot fit machine learning tools. They cannot fit all these technical fixes we want. It's not because those technical fixes will not work, but for them to truly have the potential they have for good and bad, we have to situate them in the real world theater that is messy, that is untidy, that has histories, that is also driven by good ideas. I think at the end of the day, no one just wants to blow us into smithereens and we don't exist. I think it's really who um, everyone, everywhere they are, how do they get to actually contribute to the kind of future they want to see and how do they do that in context that they do not exist in the world alone. No man or woman is an island. Well, that was interesting. I think if we had to summarize the main takeaways, it's evident that data or any app that it informs is not a quick fix. And although digital data and technologies are, in a sense, a new phenomenon, we cannot analyze them separately from historical experiences and systemic inequalities that exist. Yeah, absolutely. History matters. No app can easily address systemic problems. Another key takeaway for me was that context matters, and we must have the humility and urgency to understand what users want and need and adapt to this, rather than import a digital platform or algorithm or program. Definitely. And now moving on to our second guest, Moses, Ugandan PhD student, to delve deeper on these issues. Moses, what are your thoughts on the current practices of data collection and mining in Africa right now? How do you think that might contribute to some of the dependencies? So there's a, there's a divide between local and international expertise, I would say. Uh, and I, I usually like to, to think about it in terms of a helicopter coming in and, and collecting some data and then going, going, leaving, going out. And so the people who the data is collected from usually don't end up benefiting from uh, this data, uh, the use of their data. So, so there's a divide. There's a divide in that I think the role that most local people do is basically to do the actual collection of the data. So they they are very virtual in that purpose but beyond that uh we don't have the expertise to actually do the analysis uh and even just access the tools that do the analysis themselves this is usually expensive so so that's how the the, the dependency accrues whereby local people are just involved in the collection and what comes after that is, is kind of out of their hand and like, what what is the like? What are the biggest problems with that approach? You think the biggest, the biggest uh, problem with that approach is that ideally we should be doing transfer. Uh, I mean, not transfer skill sharing, um, whereby we encourage local people to also know how to do analysis of this data, uh, teaching them the best data practice, data collection practices and analysis practices, so that we we empower them. I think the, the end goal should be to educate and empower them uh, such that if I'm collecting the data, I also get an idea of how to analyze it. 
uh, and maybe that would enable me to transfer that skill to something else that the expert may not be interested in, but I think is, is, is meets the need of the local population or my local community. Uh, so I think that's the bit that is, 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 is missing. In many ways, data extraction and privacy concerns are a global issue. So we were really interested to ask Moses how he thought that the situation in Africa compared to extraction happening elsewhere around the world. And he highlighted three factors to us that were pertinent in Africa. First, weak awareness around data privacy. Second, monopolization of the internet by actors such as Facebook. And third, lack of context-specific solutions provided by such actors. So they are not, they are not aware of the many intrinsic ways in which data collection happens. Uh, they are not aware of uh, the different ways it's used. Uh, they are not aware of... We don't take time to actually digest and think about nefarious ways in which this data might be used against us. We're always looking at the positive end. It's like maybe there's something good that's going to come out of this. Um, and so awareness is kind of on a low. In terms of the companies collecting the data, um, if you went back to Africa, most people will tell you Facebook is the, is the internet because to them, that's the main function that, or that's the main site that they're using uh, to, to access or do things on the internet. But that, is that the truth? The truth is no. There are many other things beyond Facebook that can be used on the, that, that are done on the internet, right? And so the monopolization of, 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 of the internet uh, also hinders in that we cannot think beyond that. We are kind of stamped to only think about the internet as Facebook, as Google, and nothing beyond, nothing else. So that, that hampers innovation in terms of getting people to think of other ways that they could use the internet to their benefit. And, and since you bring up uh, Facebook with the free basics, so Facebook offers free basics, uh, access wow. to internet, internet for really uh, low cost. Do you, mm. What do you think would be another way of providing such services? Because in a way, Facebook sort of fills a gap. Like Otherwise, a lot of people would not be able to go online and connect. And Facebook mm. sort of provides this and in return for that, like they get paid by date, with data, I would mm. say. And if you mm. were to say, okay, that's, that's not really a right approach because people can and might be exploited by Facebook collecting their data, what would be an alternative for such a service? Or like how could it be done in a more inclusive and less extractive way, you think? So I think the... The approach is noble by Facebook to increase access to services. Um, but as I've said, the goal might differ because when you look, if I don't know if you've used basics before, but when you look at the basics, or at the time they started using, they started rolling out basics, most of the services in there were like services of like international services, like things, there were apps or things that were not contextualized to, to 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 African countries. So you had no local news sites in there. You maybe had like BBC or something. Uh, you had Facebook in there, of course. So there, were, there was nothing. There was no e-government, uh, let's say look, uh, national birth registration service in there. So if you're talking about increasing access for people, 
you have to include within that package services that also people can find useful within their local areas. So they find the service useful rather than it just being uh, an avenue whereby people go in to just give you information. Um, and so I think I think that's where the free basic service kind of failed in, in, in its endeavor. Um, when you talk about what are the alternatives, <laughs> alternatively, just let the internet be free for all and let us, let, everybody, let, let now the, the, the notion be, let the goal be to basically increase, increase access for all, increase access to the whole entire open internet. Don't, don't bring it as a Facebook service or a something service. Just make sure that we're providing internet access for you to access the whole of the internet. Given that the data protection laws across Africa are lagging right now, we also asked Moses, looking forward, what does he think is necessary to make progress in this area in implementing more robust data protection measures across Africa? I think it will be, right now it's fragmented uh, because each country is coming up with its own policy at a different time. Uh, but it, it, it will be, it will be better implemented through the African Union because the African Union represents 50, 53, I don't know the exact number of those countries. And within it, you can actually then easily say, this one is for East Africa, these are the policies for West and South and North, because even within the continent, there are different uh, behaviors and, and, and cultures. So, so, but then it becomes the like de facto head that, that can, can kind of have the heavy blow to deal with, with companies like Facebook. As an African Union as a whole, coming up with a set of privacy guidelines that you can give to Facebook and say, hey, we need you to put the data servers within somewhere in Africa. And so all the data that is collected for African people goes to that place. And then we can be, as, be able to, 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 follow, to implement the, the privacy policies that we deem necessary. Finally, we asked Moses where he thought that the situation in terms of dependencies on external expertise stood right now, and looking forward, what he imagined could be the future of innovation and data in Africa over the next 20 years. I mean, right now, it's, we're still a little bit of, we, I think we're more skewed towards the dependency bit. Um, but mo moving forward, I think we'll kind of finally catch up and people will be... Uh, more in control of their own data. Um, so the current status of things is just as you thought. Uh, <laughs> so that hasn't changed as much as far as I know. But we're optimistic that it's going to change and, and, and we're not going to let uh, this wave, uh, we're not going to miss this wave. So, so I think it's an important question that actually you guys even look into uh, because that's, that's how we, that's, just by even having you guys ask such a question, that's the way you start moving needles uh, in the positive direction. So it's very important to have more people interested in this. Uh, uh, it's very important to do work in this area and put a torch or spotlight on it. And, and for me, that's one of the reasons, not because I also come from there and, and I care that much, but also making sure that at some point we're in a position to decide our own fate and how our data is used and stuff like that. And with those two great contributions from Nanjira and Moses, that marks the end of this podcast. To sum up, as Moses said, 
the current practices of data do seem to be reinforcing dependencies on external expertise. And data is extracted on a large scale, leaving African users to the mercy of companies and governments. To change this, we must acknowledge the power dynamics and historical imbalances at play in paving forward a solution. What is needed are more African data analysts to develop fitting solutions. Secondly, states should act as custodians of public interest and protect privacy. Thank you for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed making it.